Well, hey, church, glad to see you here this morning. Uh, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, uh, my parents, they would throw all of, all of us kids into a car, and we would spend a lot of Saturdays, it seems like, driving to Toledo, where they would like get all their shopping done and all the errands that they need to run. Um, and so we'd go visit all the stores that don't exist anymore because I'm realizing that I'm getting older. And so like Value City and Hills and, um, and Southwick Mall, remember that? And... Builder Square and just all these other stores that we'd all like, they just try to kind of hit it all at once. We'd always go to Old Country Buffet, right? Don't even know, don't think that exists anymore. I don't know. Um, and so that's kind of like the routine that we would do. It seemed like we would do it a lot on Saturdays, um, kind of as a family, big thing, and uh, us kids were just kind of along for the ride. Now, inevitably, Every time this would happen, every time we would go to Toledo for whatever, um, we, I would always get in trouble, okay? I'm a kid. That's what kids do, all right? That's cool. That's or not cool. Maybe as a parent now, I don't think that's cool, but, you know, that's like, that's just what kids do. And I would hear something like this, usually from my mom. She'd say, hey, when we get home, you're going to get punished, and that was always a bad thing. But for me, I knew with my parents that I could usually, um, if I played my cards right, I could get out of it. And, um, and the way I would do that is we'd get home, usually it'd be at night. And so what I would do is fall asleep, fall asleep, you know, in the car. Anybody ever do that? Okay. Right? Like, like to avoid the punishment and avoid what's coming next. And not only would I not get punished like I was supposed to, um, but I would get the free ride to the bed, all right, which is awesome. They'd pick me up because they don't want to wake me up, all right? For, in their minds, it's like, oh, it's going to be a mess. And so they'd take me, they'd throw me in bed, and I knew as a kid that if they walked out that door and they shut the door, I was home free. You know what I'm talking about? Like, there's just something about making it to the next day that you just kind of like start all over. I don't know what that's all about, but that's just how it is. And I think a lot of us, even as adults, I think we carry that same mentality into our adult lives. And, and we think this way. We think when we do wrong, we think that many, 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 many times that we can get away with it scot-free. Right, then we won't have to pay the consequence um, for doing whatever we've done. But God tells us something very different. Okay, We see this all throughout the Bible. We see this all over the place. Um, God tells us that there is always a consequence for sin. Now, we might not ever always recognize that consequence. We might not always see the consequence or even feel it or not. It doesn't really matter. But sin is always accompanied by consequence. And today we're going to look at King David, who is going to learn this in his own life. Now, we've been talking about a king uh, from the Old Testament named David. And uh, for the last few weeks, he hasn't even become king yet. All right, have you noticed that? We've been going, this is our seventh week. David's not even king yet. We've been waiting for this. And David was waiting for this for a big chunk of his life. In fact, not only is he not king, he's quite the opposite. He's a fugitive and he's on the run because there's the current king. His name is Saul. He wants David dead because he views David as a rival. And for over 10 years, David is on the run uh, from King Saul. This is really happens throughout his entire decade of his 20s that he is running away with his merry band of men, just kind of going from place to place to place to place. Now, this is not how he expected his life to be. Right? Like, think about it. When he was 13 to 14 years old, an old prophet comes to town from God saying, hey, um, this kid is going to be the next king. And he anoints David as king. And from that point on, you know David, he's excited. You know David's going, oh man, God chose me out of everybody to be the future king of Israel. But fast forward 17 years. He's 30 years old. He's got nothing. 
He's a fugitive on the run. People are trying to kill him. And he's lost everything. And you know he's got to be thinking that many, the same thing that many of us have thought at different times going on in our life. Where we're just like, God, where you at? What's going on here? God, what, why are you allowing this to happen in my life? God, I thought you wanted me to do this. Where are you? Did you make a mistake? Have you just simply forgotten me? Do you know what's going on here in my life? And David has to be thinking the same thing as he's been waiting for this for 17 years until one day a messenger arrives. And the news that this messenger brings sets into motion a series of events that eventually lead to David finally, 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 finally being crowned king. Now, um, over the next few minutes, I'm going to go through this quickly, okay? So we're going to, um, and I don't expect you to keep up. I don't expect you to get everything. Um, hopefully you get the gist of kind of how all this happens and how David becomes king, because there's a lot of stuff going into this. Um, what I would encourage you to do is read First and Second Samuel this week by yourself, all right? Or, or at home, or, you know, not here is what I'm saying. So you should totally go do that, um, and uh, you'll be all ready and prepared for next week as we wrap up the series. Sound good? Yeah, you guys aren't going to do it. Okay. <laughs> I can tell by your response. I'm like, yeah, okay, Zach, yeah, whatever you say. <laughs> okay. Um, but really, you should go do that. So I'm going to go through this quickly. Are you ready? Okay. Try to keep up. Um, so this messenger, messenger shows up to David's place, and he says, hey, David, I just want to let you know King Saul and his son Jonathan have both died. Now remember, Jonathan happens to be one of David's best friends, maybe his best friend that he hasn't seen for a long time because his dad hates David, King Saul. And so when David hears about this, he mourns for Saul, even though Saul has been trying to kill him for the last decade. See, what David understands is that an L for the king is an L for the nation. But his men are pumped. Right? they got to be. All right, they're like, finally, time for David to take over and become king over all of Israel. Now, there's something you got to understand. Israel is made up of 12 tribes or 12 kind of families. Um, and so um, David, or only one of the tribes, ends up crowning David as king. It happens to be the tribe that David is from, the tribe of Judah. They crown David as king. The other 11 tribes, they take one of Saul's sons. His name is Ishbosheth, sweet name, I know. And they crown him as king. And you know David's got to be thinking, he's just like, you got to be kidding me. Is this what God wanted? Is this how it's supposed to go? I'm only king over one tribe out of all, the, uh, out of all 12? Like this doesn't seem to make any sense. And so there's this big civil war that happens. Now, um, here's where we get, here's where we start going quick. All right, David, he's got a general named Joab. Ishbosheth, he's got a general named Abner, okay? And they both kind of hate each other and they're both not friends and they're both kind of rivals. And so um, at one point, they're fighting with each other. They're having a big civil war and Abner versus Joab, David's men versus Ishbosheth's men. And so they're fighting with each other. And at one point, Abner and Joab, they decide, hey, instead of all this bloodshed, why don't we just get a few guys that can have some hand-to-hand -hand combat? We can watch this for sport. It'll be fun and it'll be interesting and it'll be right. Rivals, um, uh, David's men versus Ishbosheth's men. And so they do that, and friendly competition ends up turning into deadly competition, and Joab's men start killing all right, Abner's men and Ishbosheth's men. And so um, when that starts happening, Abner decides, hey, I'm out of here. We're going to leave. I'm going back home. And so he goes back home. But Joab's brother, who happens to be on the scene, he starts chasing after Abner. And Abner's like, stop chasing me. And the guy's like, uh-uh, I'm going to keep chasing you. And he says, no, stop. If you keep chasing me, I'm going to have to hurt you, and your brother Joab's not going to be happy. But the guy keeps chasing him. And so 
Israel, eventually Abner takes his spear, the blunt end of his spear, to try to stop him, and he tries to stop him, and it goes through the guy's body, and he ends up dying. Now, as you can imagine, Joab is not very happy when he finds out that Abner has just killed his, his brother. And so Joab gathers all the men of Israel, all, or all of David's men, I guess, and he goes, and he goes after Abner, who kind of walls himself out in a fortified town. When he gets there, they decide, hey, this is going to be too much bloodshed. It's going to take too long to take this town. And so they kind of make a temporary truce, but Joab does not forget ex- what Abner has done to his brother. In the meantime, Abner, he goes back to Ishbosheth, the king, and Ishbosheth accuses Abner of sleeping with one of his dad's wives, King Saul's wives. And so, as you can imagine, Ishbosheth is um, offended. And so he says, Forget you, Ishbosheth, or not Ishbosheth. Abner is offended. And so Abner says, Forget you, Ishbosheth. I'm going to go and I'm going to align with David. So he goes to David and says, Hey, David, this is what I'm going to do. I am going to talk to all the elders of the 11 tribes that you are not king over, and I'm going to talk to them, and we're going to crown you as the king over everybody. We'll have a united nation again. As you can imagine, David's happy. He makes this big party. All right, him and Abner become good friends over the course of this day. And, uh, and Joab doesn't happen to be there. Um, Abner, he leaves town after the party. Joab enters town. He finds out that David has been partying with Abner, the guy who killed his brother. So he's really ticked off. He calls Abner back to town, and he goes up to Abner and says, hey, I got something to tell you. He pulls out his knife, and he stabs Abner in the stomach, and he dies. In the meantime, David's just like, everybody just chill. Stop killing each other. And so, um, and so that all happens when Ishbosheth hears that Abner has died. Everybody in Israel and the 11 tribes, they lose hope. And they decide, okay, David is probably going to be our next king because Ishbosheth without Abner is a disaster. And so two guys, they, they sneak into Ishbosheth's house in the middle of the day while Ishbosheth is taking a nap on his own bed. And they kill him on his own bed. They cut off his head. They take the head to David and say, hey, guess what, David? We killed Ishbosheth for you. Now you can become king of everybody. And David's like, you killed the guy on on his bed. Come on, man. That's not manly. And he has those two guys put to death. And so all that's happening. In the meantime, um, as the dust settles, you got Abner who's dead. You got Ishmael now who's dead. You got the Philistines who are the enemy who keep on attacking Israel at every chance they can get. And so David has to push them back. You got Jerusalem, which has been taken over by another enemy group of people. So David has to go reconquer that city. And so when we talk about David today, he has done all that. You guys with me? Go read it, okay? See, that's why I told you to read it. This all happens over a period of seven years, really seven and a half years. And um, David is finally crowned king over all of Israel. He's 37 years old here. He's even picked out his new capital. He's going to take Jerusalem, which was a big fortified city that sits up on a, um, sits up on like a, a, a rock outcropping. He's going to, he crowns that really his, his new capital, and he's successful in everything, just like God told him he would be. And he starts rebuilding Jerusalem, and he builds a huge palace for him. And in fact, one of the things that David has in his heart to do is he realizes, he's like, man, I got this sweet palace and a sweet home here, but the Ark of the Covenant is out like hanging out in tents, like is under tents, like that just doesn't sit well with him. Now for those of you who are like, what the heck is the Ark of the Covenant? You haven't watched Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones for a while, all right? Basically, it's just a, it's a gold box that God commanded the Jewish people to create for him, to build for him, um, and uh, the, that's hundreds of years before when they have the exodus out of Egypt, and Moses is their leader. They create this box, and inside this box is like the Ten Commandments and stuff, and so there's a few other things. And so basically what this box does was it was considered holy, right? Super holy. It represented the presence 
of God. And it was so holy, in fact, that you weren't even allowed to touch it. In fact, um, a few years before, a bunch of Jewish guys, they, they brought the Ark of the Covenant and they all started like looking inside, which is something I'd be tempted to do. What's in there? I want to see, you know. And they, God kills them all, all right? They all die. So this is a very, very, very important thing. And it's very holy to God. And so the way they would carry this thing is they had some rings on each side and they throw shoot a pole through it and then two guys on each side, so four guys total, would just carry the ark around or they would set it on a cart. And so at this point, for the last 300 to 400 years, the ark has just been hanging out in tents and stuff. And so here's David. This bothers him. He wants to bring the ark back to Jerusalem and build a permanent home for, for the ark, which will be the future temple. And so what David does is he comes up with this plan. He gathers 30,000 men of his troops and they go and uh, it says they set the ark of God. They, they grab it. This, this guy named Abinadab has been at his place for a while. He's been just kind of looking after it. It says they set the ark of God, God on a new cart and they transported it from Abinadab's house, which is on the hill. It says Uzzah and Ohio. Okay, by the way, just want to let you know, I think that's probably a typo. That was probably supposed to be an O there. And the Buckeyes won last night, so we're good. Okay. Notice, by the way, you don't see any Michigan all right, um, in the Bible at all. Because they're cheaters. All right? But Ohio, this dude's intense. He was a son of the Abinadab and um, his brother Uzzah, and they were guiding the cart. It says, and they brought it with the cart or with the ark of God from Abinadab's house on the hill, and Ohio walked in front of the ark because that's the most honorable place. All right? And his name is sweet. So it says, David and the whole house of Israel, they were dancing before the Lord with all kinds of fur, wood instruments, lyres, harps, trampolines. Tr- tr- not trampolines, tra- t- tambourines, and sistrums, cis- that's just drums and cymbals. So can you imagine what's going on here? So David comes up with a new plan. He's like, let's bring the ark to Jerusalem. We're going to build this sweet temple for it. And this is where God can be in our capital city. This is where God can dwell. And they have this big party and this big parade as the ark is being led to the city. And this is something that's just never been done before in all of Israel. In fact, everybody is worshiping God, even the king. David's dancing, all right? He, he's so pumped about it, and he's worshiping God with any means necessary, and he's so excited that he's able to do this. In verse 6, it said, Now, when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah, he reached out to the ark of God, and he took hold of it because the oxen had stumbled. Now, you get what's going on? All right, so the Ark of the Covenant is on this, like, cart. The oxen are pulling it. The oxen kind of stumble, and the ark is getting ready to fall off the cart. It says, and he, he steadies it so it doesn't fall. It says, then the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah, and God struck him dead on the spot for his irreverence, and he died there next to the ark of God. Man, if you're like me, you're reading this, and you're like, do what? <laughs> What's the, I, I don't understand what the problem is here. Like, what, what, what's God doing with this? Like, Uzzah, all he's trying to do is trying to help. He's trying to make it not. He doesn't want it to fall on the ground. By the way, that's how all of us think, right, when it comes to sin in our life. All right, many times we're faced with a choice, and, and uh, most of the time, a lot of times, when we're faced with a choice, God has already given us clear guidance. He's already told us the decision we need to make in his word. Okay, the problem is we don't read it. 
And so um, God has already given us clear guidance. And what we start doing when we're faced with a choice between right or wrong is we start reasoning in our minds why in our particular situation and at this particular moment that it's okay to do the opposite of what God's already told us to do. Right? We do that? Right? We all do that. Okay, we reason like this in our mind. We think to ourselves, like, my situation is different. I know God told us not to do this, but my situation is different. And that's really what Uzzah did here. Uzzah thinks the same way that we think. Right? He's going, well, you know, I know we're not, God tells us not to touch this thing, but if, if the ark's going to fall to the ground, and so we don't want that to happen. And so what, really what he does here, and the problem is, see, Uzzah made the assumption that his hands were cleaner than the ground. And the wrath of God is on display. And that's how serious God takes sin. See, here's the deal. God says don't. So just don't. And everybody watches as Uzzah steadies the ark on the cart and then falls to the ground dead. And David reacts. It says David was angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. David is, he's just, in fact, he's so angry that he's like, fine, forget it. I'm not bringing the ark to Jerusalem. The ark could go back to the tents. All right, he's also a little freaked out, like, man, I don't know if I want that near me. I don't want that near my house. What if my kids, you know, I don't know if he's probably thinking, like, what if my kids accidentally touch it or something like that? So he sends the ark away, and he is just mad at God. Have you ever been there before? I'm not saying it's right, it's, it's wrong. But have you ever just, like deep inside, have you ever just been mad at God or angry with God? See, it seems like many times that we're angry with God, um, we're angry with God because of the consequences that come from sin. Actually, it's almost all the time that we're angry with God. It's a consequence that comes from sin, which is so odd to me because it doesn't make any sense. Because God teaches us that sin is not good for us. Like, here's the deal. The Bible teaches us that sin is not good for you. It is always after us. And God promises us over and over and over again, saying sin is always accompanied by consequences. All right? It always is. And so we know it. Like, like we get that, and I think a lot of us, we totally understand that. But then when, we, when we're faced with the consequences for our sin, or someone even around us is faced with consequences as a result of their sin, we get all mad about it, and we act like it's not fair. And so just like us, David struggles with this, and he immediately reacts with anger, like a lot of us do. Now, you'd think that watching someone get struck down for simply disobeying God would be something that you'd never forget, right? Like, uh, if that happened at work tomorrow, you'd be like, oh, okay, probably won't be doing that. You know what I mean? Like, if you'd remember it, it'd be like a real object lesson that, uh, that sin is always accompanied by consequence. And maybe, this is what I think, I think this really serves David well. Maybe that's the reason why God chooses to, the consequence specifically for Uzzah here. See, because for the next 15 years, David seems to lead really, 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 really well until one spring. Um, in 2 Samuel verse, chapter 11, this is in the spring when the kings march out to, to war. David sent Joab with his officers in all of Israel, and they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, that's a city. But David remained in Jerusalem. Now, the author is trying to get us to understand that this is not normal. He's trying to get us to see something here, that this is a very, very big deal. And see, the primary job as a king was to protect 
his people. And David has been doing well with this for years. I mean, God has just made him, God has given him so much success in this area of his life. But this time in particular, instead of going to battle and leading the army of Israel against their ruthless enemy, he sends someone else to do it. And David stays home. Now, at this point in David's life, you got to understand, David's no longer the cool kid who killed Goliath. Okay, at this point in his life, David's like in his early 50s. Um, and, uh, and in ancient times now, before you get all upset, I'm just saying, early 50s now, totally cool. All right, it's like midlife type stuff. All right, you're not even like retired yet for most people. But in ancient times, man, early 50s is like old, like really old. I'm saying like you probably lost most of your teeth, you were not young, you're not handsome, and you smelled weird, Okay. Like that, like that old. Like, so that's David at this point in his life. I'm just being honest. All right. That's David at this point in his life in ancient times. And so, and so David, he remains back. Maybe that's the reason why he remains back. Although we know that he goes off into battle after this. So who knows what the reasoning, reasoning is. The author does not tell us. But the author tells us that one evening, David, he got up from his bed and he strolled around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. A very beautiful woman. Now, in the ancient Hebrew, this literally means, this word for beautiful literally means fine. Okay? So here's the Bible saying that there's this woman who was fine. Not just fine, but very fine. And uh, she is doing her thing. And David happens to notice her from the roof of his, um, of his palace. And so David, he sends someone to inquire about her. Right? He's probably a servant. Where he's like, hey. Uh, I got a question. Hey, who is that? All right? Who, who, who is that? And he's, and the servant says, says, isn't that, um, you don't want to be looking at her that way. And, and the servant probably knows exactly what's going on. Like, whoa, 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 David, David, just chill, buddy. All right, back the hormone train up a little bit, you know. And he's saying, he's saying, isn't that Bathsheba? That's the daughter, 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 daughter of Eliam. All right, now Eliam, what the, what the, Servant is doing here is making it personal to David and trying to save David. See, Eliam was somebody that David knew extremely well. In fact, he was one of David's lifelong or, or longtime soldiers. And so the, the servant's making it personal, saying, hey, you know, Eliam, like one of your best guys, like best dudes. All right, that's his daughter. Daughter. And David's like, okay. And then he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not only daughter. Hey, and that's also the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Right? You know, Uriah and David knew Uriah well. Uriah wasn't just one of David's longtime, tr- longtime uh, soldiers. Um, Uriah was one of his most trusted men. In fact, Uriah was one of his top 30 guys that he had that David deemed his mighty men. And he was a man who David knew. He was a man who fought alongside David. He was a man who David trusted. But when David sees Uriah's wife, he just can't seem to help himself. And he can't stop thinking about her. It's going to bring him down. It says, David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to him, he slept with her. Look how fast it happens. See, the buildup is slow. All right, he's inquiring about her. He's asking questions. He's like, hey, who is that? He looks. All right, just all, the buildup is slow, but the act, the act happens quick. 
See, that's how sin works. And temptation can be slow. It can last for a while. But the act, it happens quick. And so he sleeps with her. And after that night, Bathsheba goes home. And everything, you know, seems to go good. I'm sure David had some regrets after this. Like, oh, man, I slept with, you know, Uriah's. Well, like, oh, we shouldn't have done that. Like, we had an affair. But, but there seems to be no issues. Like, nobody has to know. I'm sure that's what he's thinking. Like, we'll just keep this thing quiet. Nobody has to know. By the way, isn't that how we think when it comes to sin in our life? We all do this. Every single one of us, including myself, we think to ourselves, like, hey, this, doesn't, this is just not that big of a deal. It doesn't affect anyone. This, is a, this doesn't hurt anybody. And to a lot of us, the way we reason it in our minds, we're just like, man, we'll just never talk about it again. We'll act like this never happened. And what we think is we think we're, we get off scot-free. Scot like, we're going we're gonna to completely avoid the consequences. And that's what David's thinking until a couple months later, Bathsheba, she sends a messenger to David a message and says, hey, just want to let you know I'm pregnant. And David has a problem. Instead of facing what he had done and coming clean, David does what we all do. <laughs> and when we sin, a lot of times, is he tries to hide it. And so he comes up with a plan. He's like, all right, well, don't worry, Bathsheba. I'm going to take care of this. We're going we're gonna to hide this well. Uh, he calls Uriah home, and he um, uses the excuse, like, oh, I want to report on the battle. So, so Joab sends uh, Uriah home, and Uriah starts giving jo uh, David the report, and David's just like, yeah, 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 whatever. Hey, um, as long as you're here, you should go home and spend some time with your wife. And, and so David insists that he does that, and so he, Uriah leaves, but he doesn't go home. He spends the night outside the king's palace. And, and when David wakes up the next morning, he asks Uriah, he's like, what, what are you doing? All right, why didn't you go home? Why you spend the night on the ground? And Uriah, man, Uriah, he's just like, I don't know, man, he's just like a good dude. Like, you ever meet somebody where you're just like, man, that's just a good, that's just a good guy. That's Uriah here. Uriah answers him. He's like, man, here's the deal, David. Like, like, how am I supposed to sleep in my own house, in my own bed, with my wife, when all my men are out there sleeping in the mud and getting slaughtered? Like, I don't know, David. It just doesn't feel right. I just, I just couldn't do it. Have you ever noticed that when you're in sin, there's nothing more annoying than the integrity of others? You know what I mean? We're just like, oh, I hate that. You're doing the right thing. See, David's trying to cover up his mistake. We've all done that, right? You ever do something wrong and you try to cover it up? Right? Okay. Um, just a couple weeks ago, I, I told you guys, I was supposed to go to Israel with a, with a group of people. And um, one of the guys who was supposed to go with us was my buddy Jeff, who works at another church um, in Worcester, Ohio. And um, obviously, like, it was like 48 hours before we were supposed to leave, all the fighting and stuff in Israel happened. And so I was super bummed out. Obviously, that trip got canceled. And so my buddy called me up on Friday night. We were supposed to leave on Monday morning. And, or my buddy called me up on Saturday or Sunday night. We were supposed to leave on Monday morning. He says, hey, instead of, you know, obviously our flights are canceled and everything. He says, hey, why don't we just take my old car that I'm getting ready to scrap and let's just drive south as far south as we could possibly go. And I was like, okay, <laughs> you know. And so we jumped in his old 2002 Suzuki Thing, and it was like parts were falling off as we were driving, like within the first few hours. I mean, we were just like, it was kind of crazy. And so we just started driving south. And two days later, we found ourselves in the, on the tip, the southern tip of Texas. And we were like, 
All right, well, we didn't expect the car to make it this far. And we're like, let's cross over into Mexico. Let's cross the border. And so we uh, got up early the next morning. We crossed the border. And we had our passports and stuff, partly because they were all packed for Israel. And, um, and so when we're trying to cross the border, the Mexican military, they're like waving us to go by. They're like, go, go. And we're like, okay, you guys got bigger guns and we got nothing. So we'll, we'll leave. And so we... We crossed over with no stamp or anything, no paperwork, no nothing. And uh, we just kept driving south. Now, a couple days later, we're trying to figure out how we're going to get out of here. Again, our plan was always to sell the car and we'd just fly back um, from wherever it, like, died at. And um, here we are in Mexico, again, not planning on going there. And um, we're like, all right, well, where are we going to fly out of? We need to come up with a game plan. And so we, the nearest airport to where we were was Cancun. And so we're like, okay, well, we'll fly out of there. But then we started thinking. And we're like, we both have traveled overseas and stuff before. And we're like, wait, we don't have an entrance stamp to Mexico. And so I wonder if the border agents at the airport, if they're going to give us a hard time, like, where are you from? What's going on? Where, how'd you come in here? Like, I wonder if they're going to give us a hard time about that because we don't have any documentation about how we came in. And so we started looking some stuff online, and sure enough, it was like, oh, yeah, what we're doing was actually highly illegal. Um, you can't just, like, waltz on into Mexico like we did. There's actually, the reason why we didn't get the stamp is there's, like, a 12-mile radius of a free zone that people can kind of come and go as they please, but you're not allowed to leave that zone. Now, Remember, we're like hundreds of miles past that. And we're like, we don't want to drive three days back to the border. That will take forever. We just want to kind of go home at this point. And so we came up with a plan, kind of like what David did here, to try to cover up our tracks. We're down there and we're like, okay, instead of driving all the way back to the border, which is everything we read online was what we were supposed to do, we're like, let's just cross over into the country of Belize and then we'll cross back in. We'll get our entrance stamp. We'll make sure we get it and then we'll be free to go. We came from Belize, not from the United States. And so we drive to a border town called Chetumal, and uh, we tr we're trying to figure out how to cross over into Belize, and we, we go to the bus station. These are like chicken buses, they call them, all right? Not like nice buses. They're like old school buses. They're all painted up and stuff. And so we try to get a chicken bus, but they're not running that day, and so we wait till uh, Sunday morning. So this is two weeks ago, and we're like, okay, so the buses are supposed to leave by 8. We get there at 8. There's no buses. We have to wait for a few hours. The bus finally shows up um, on their own time, and then we grab a chicken bus to Belize. We go to the border crossing, and that border agent, who we thought would be a lot more um, easier to work with than maybe the one at the uh, airport, um, you know, we thought there'd be a lot more chill here. They're like, where are you? Where'd you come from? What, where's your documentation? All this stuff. And so we ended up, um, she, she just asked for like cash. So we gave her some cash and she let us go. And so we crossed over into Belize. We spent the day in Belize and we came back over, but we realized we couldn't, the buses weren't running anymore because it was a Sunday. They only had buses, they only had one bus in in the morning, no buses out. So that was an issue. So we have to hire a taxi to take us to this other border because the taxis aren't allowed to go through the border that we came through. And so we go to this other border crossing, we walk across the bridge, and we get to their little customs thing, and all we want is an entrance stamp. That's the whole point of all this. And when we get there, obviously none of us speak, um, we don't speak a lick of Spanish, and so uh, we're trying to tell them we need, we need stamp, and they're not giving us a stamp. We're like, we want a stamp. We're trying to do this the right way, you know, give us a stamp. They're like, no, no stamp. We don't have a stamp here. 
And so we had to hire a taxi to take us miles to the other border that we crossed in at. And we had to walk across the street to the customs there. And we had to finally get our stamp and filled out a bunch of paperwork. It's just a big mess. Have you ever tried to cover something up? If you notice, when you try to cover something up that you did wrong, like it just, it, it's, it just usually doesn't work out the way that you plan. You get what I'm saying? And it's a lot bigger of a hassle than just doing the right thing, which I learned personally a couple weeks ago. See, that's what David tries. He tries to cover up his mistakes. And then when it doesn't work, he tries again. By the way, it worked. Just throwing it out there, it worked for me. Um, So David tells Uriah, he says, hey, stay one more day. And so he stays one more day, and he gets Uriah, he eats with him. He gets him all good and drunk. He takes Uriah, and he says, hey, um, home is that way. Go home. And Uriah makes it a little while, and he passes out. And so it doesn't work. He st- spends the night with, with, at David's palace outside the gates again. So his plan is still not working. And so David has to audible again, and he makes another plan. And he writes a letter to his commander, Joab. Remember him. And he says, hey, this is what I want you to do. I want you to put Uriah in the fiercest part of the battle. And then when the battle gets, like, like heavy and, and things are going crazy, I want you to pull back and allow the enemy to kill him. He signs it. He seals it. He hands the letter to Uriah. And he says, hey, Uriah, nice knowing you. Uh, if you just give this sealed letter to Joab, that would be awesome. Which is kind of messed up, by the way. Because here, Uriah, without knowing, is carrying his own death sentence. And Joab receives the letter. And he does it because he can't say no to the king. And he, Uriah gets killed in battle. And then David, when he finds out that Uriah is dead, he takes Bathsheba, his wife, and he marries her. And to everybody on the outside, everybody's going, wow, how noble of a king do we have? Taking care of Uriah's wife, one of his best buddies' wife, and raising Uriah's child. What a great, wonderful man. He's going to raise somebody else's child. And everything in David's mind is good now. He won. He beat the system. David doesn't seem to be really acknowledging what he's done. I'm sure he's got some regret because David was generally a good guy. But he's thinking it's done now. Right? It's over. There's nothing he can do about it now. I mean, Bathsheba's his wife now. Everything is good and everything is legal. And a few months pass by and the baby is born. I'm sure that brings excitement. I bet some of that excitement of the new baby being born helps mask what has happened. And all the readers, as everybody's thinking about this and everybody's looking at this and everybody who knew, it's just like, this is it, the end. I mean, what do we learn from this story? The powerful get to do whatever they want. The kings make the rules. But the last verse of chapter 11 it says, however, the Lord, it's like David completely forgot about God, that he sees all. He says, however, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. And so God sends a messenger to David. It's actually a friend. His name is Nathan. And Nathan scheduled an appointment with the king, and he walks in. And Nathan um, has a planned story. He comes up with a story um, that happens to deal with sheep. And remember, David, I think what he's trying to do, he's trying to like tug at the heartstrings of David back when, from when he was a kid. Because remember, David was a shepherd by trade before he was king. Like, that's what he did. And so Nathan steps on the scene and steps into the room. He says, hey, David, I just want to let you know about a situation that's happening under your rule, under your kingship. He says, um, there's, this, there's this rich guy and this poor guy. This rich guy, he's just got like flocks and flocks and sheep all over the place. You walk into his, to his place, there's just sheep everywhere. It's crazy. And he's like, and then you got this poor guy. This poor guy only has one little lamb and he loves that 
that little lamb. In fact, uh, Nathan says he, he views this little lamb as like a daughter to him, which is a little much in my opinion, but I know some of you guys, that's how you treat your dogs and your cat at home. So you should know this, understand this better than I should. And he's like, he's got this little lamb and he feeds the lamb from the table, right, just like some of you guys do. He sleeps with the lamb, just like some of you guys do. You know, he's like all about this little lamb. It's like, a, it's like his own child to him. And this rich guy, one day, he's got a bunch of friends that come over and instead of um, feeding, instead of slaughtering one of his animals to feed his guests, he actually goes over to the poor guy and he takes his little lamb and he kills it and he cooks it up and he feeds that one to their guests. He's like, and Nathan's just like, I don't know, what should we do about this? And David, when he hears this story, and again, I think he kind of reverts back to his thinking as a boy, as he was a shepherd. He's just like, he reacts with emotion and he is ticked. In fact, David says, this guy, that rich guy deserves to die. And then Nathan points his finger at David, which had to have taken some guts. And he says, you are the man. And he says, and this is what the Lord God of Israel says. He says, David, so these are God's words. He says, David, I anointed you king over Israel, and I rescued you from Saul. Did you forget that? I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms, meaning you are in charge of King Saul's family now. He says, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah, and if that was not enough, I would have given you even more. Like, if you wanted more, why didn't you just ask me for it? He says, why then have you despised the Lord's command by doing what I consider as evil. And I was, uh, as I was thinking about this this past week, I was just wondering, I was like, man, I wonder if God asks the same question about us. You ever think about that? Does God ever look at us as we do something wrong and just like, why? Why, why would you do that? Why, you know, do you think you ever ask, like, like, look, why are you rebelling against me? Like, look what I've given you. I've given you your family. Look how I've blessed you. I gave you your job, your home, your relationships. I've allowed you to live in the safest place in the entire world at the safest time in human history. He's saying, I made you one of the most wealthy individuals in the entire world. Like, like I've given you so much. So why do you, you rebel against me? Why do you do what I consider as evil? Do you ever think he asked that question? About us? And when David hears this, Maybe he thinks all the way back to Uzzah 15 or so years before. And it cuts him to the heart. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. He's saying, man, I, okay, he's like, I sinned. It doesn't, notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't make excuses. Right? He doesn't try to justify why he did what he did. What he does is he acknowledges it, which is probably the hardest thing that that it, for all of us to do when we do something wrong. See, I think that's the difference between us and David. See, David, who the Bible describes as a man after God's own heart, he's not described as a man after God's own heart because he is perfect, but because he repents when he does wrong. And so Nathan replied to him, he says, and guess what, David? The Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. You won't die like Uzzah. He decided to have mercy on you. He says, however, because you treated the Lord with such contempt in this matter, the son born to you, unfortunately, will die. Notice that David still receives a consequence. Do you realize that? I mean, it's not, here's God saying, all right, I for, oh, you're sorry, okay, cool, I forgive you. All right, I, I, I forget, 
Like, like it's, it's, not, it's not a forgive and forget. Here's God. He's saying, he's, and, and this is a good thing for us dads and us parents we need to understand because God is the perfect father. Look at how he disciplines his children here, okay? Here's God. He's saying, I forgive you and I love you. Now here's your consequence. And the son dies. And not only that, but Nathan also warns him. He says, you know what? This thing that you did is going to set into motion a series of events. It's going to be a disaster, David, for your family. Why'd you do that? It's going to be a mess for you in the future. We're going to talk about what that will be next week. See, sin is always accompanied by a consequence because sin is not good for us. We may not always understand it. We may not always see the negative that comes from sin. We may not always feel it. Although I think a lot of times it is clear. Like we can we totally understand, okay, yeah, this happened because I did this. But it's there. And in the end, it ends up hurting us. And God uses the consequences to teach us. See, for eventually, for David, yeah, his son dies. And Bathsheba has to go through that as well. It says, then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went into her, and he slept with her, and she gave birth to a son. And they named him Solomon, and the Lord loved him. And we'll pick up there next week. Let's pray. God, we uh, thank you for, these, for this story. Thank you for this example Lord, of how serious sin is in our life. Now, none of us in this room, none of us take sin that serious, not even close. We think, ah, it's just not that big of a deal. But for you, it is a big deal. God, and we thank you, and this is hard for us to say, but we thank you for giving us or allowing, I guess it's more allowing the consequences that come into our life from sin because that helps correct us and it helps teach us to live life your way. God, we ask that we do that this week and that we lean into you and that we trust you just like David did, even when he made the wrong decision. God, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.